Hi, I'm Janet Deneef, founder and director of the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival. You are about to hear one of the highlight sessions of the 2021 event, which featured more than 150 storytellers and was explored through our theme, Mulat Sarira, self-reflection. So please settle in and let the magic of our 18th year continue. you to our authors in just a moment and you will have some opportunities to ask questions as well so I'm going to remind you now because it's such a short session the time will fly have a think about what you might want to ask as we're speaking and please keep your questions to questions not comments because no one wants to be that person particularly not in this session I'm just saying Unless you just want to exclaim, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Unless you just want. <laughs> we can all do that collectively, if you like, at the end. Uh, we are um, meeting on the land of Wadjuk people of the Noongar Nation and in the spirit of reconciliation, I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and to acknowledge that the land was never ceded. Today, our discussion is about women and anger. Last year, Fremantle Press published a collection of essays. Who's read it? Ah, oh, how brilliant was it? it? I just, I loved it so much. I burst into tears about 20 times in the first two pages, and I'm not sure what that says about how I deal with anger, but there you go. <laughs> so Liz Bursky and Georgia Richter from Frio Press invited a series of Australian women to contribute and Liz noted in her introduction that women's, women's anger still attracts widespread and often vicious condemnation and that her favourite public expression of women's rage is Julia Gillard's famous misogyny speech in Parliament in 2012. And Ali reminded her that today is actually the ninth anniversary. So... Yes, it feels very appropriate we're having this conversation. I would like you to meet three women who contributed in such powerful and personal and courageous <laughs> ways. <laughs> Victoria Midwinter Pitt is one of Australia's leading documentary filmmakers. Her work included Surviving Mumbai, Leaky Boat and Afghanistan Inside Australia's War. Anne Ali is the federal member for Cowan and a professor at Edith Cowan University, specialising in terrorism, counter-terrorism and radicalisation. And Meg McKinley is a children's writer and poet. She's published 18 books for young people and a collection of adult poetry. Please make them welcome. Um, I'm just getting out of the way. <laughs> now, wise move. <laughs> oh, can I? Can we start first because it feels just so special that we are uh, meeting today. It is the ninth anniversary of Julia Gillard's famous misogyny speech. It feels like there should be uh, so many more examples of such incandescent, articulated, beautiful rage from women that are public that we can look to. Can I ask just your thoughts on perhaps that speech and where we've moved from there? Um, Anne? Oh, oh, do you want to? Oh, you go first. Oh, um, oh, that speech and where we've moved from there. I wish we could say that we've moved from there, but I don't think we have. And I think, you know, this year we've seen the Women's March and we've seen, you know, it was a lot of people described it as a moment 
And I remember standing up in Parliament saying, I hope it's not just a moment. I hope it's not just something that's written into the margins of the history books as something that's happened and then we go back to business as usual. Um, I'd like to think that, that beyond a moment there's momentum around women's anger, women's outrage and women's rage, because I think it's important to acknowledge that it's not just rage, it's outrage. And outrage is often seen more as a kind of a justifiable response to, uh, to injustice, inequality and all of those things. So, you know, have we moved on from there? I don't think we have, particularly not in Parliament. Um, but I, I hold optimism that we will move on from there. Yeah, I um, agree and I don't agree with you. It's a good beginning, huh? It's a good so start. Good. It's so the conversation <laughs> that Victoria and I have every time. Yeah. We've got to just go and have a little riot at the end of this. Anyone's <laughs> very welcome to join us. So I reckon that the, the, um, the little spot where I maybe don't agree with you and I'm really excited not to agree with you is about the word we. So when you say we haven't moved on, I think that the patriarchy has not moved on and that's hardly a surprise. That's hardly a surprise. Nine years is actually a short period of time. But we, women, I think we've come a long way in those nine years. I think that the, um, that the impulse to actually speak out has grown. I think that the number of women who feel that they are justified and they're not alone in the feelings that they have and those little dots beginning to join up, I think we've changed massively. It's just the beginning, but I think it's a really... I think it's a seismic shift. I think it's the beginning of an earthquake. Big change. Patriarchy, not so much. In the spirit of the theme of the panel, I'm going to agree and disagree with both of you. <laughs> My abiding feelings when I heard that speech were gratitude to Julia Gillard for doing that in the public sphere. In, in as, you know, as you said, such an articulate but also incandescent way. And I don't think we have to be articulate. I think we're just allowed to be incandescent. But the fact that it was both was wonderful. I felt gratitude and relief as if I'd been holding my breath for such a long time. And we, we've all written in the book about our childhood experiences. And I think we have been clenched for a long time. And so there was that sense of finally someone has said this. But I, I feel like we have moved a bit. And I feel like it's mostly women, but I feel like as a whole, we have shifted a tiny bit because, and I guess a way of thinking about this might be that I think if a similar speech were made in Parliament today, I think it would still be, you know, roundly mocked and derided by men of all stripes, but they wouldn't be as surprised and taken aback by it because that ground has been broken. So I guess I'm, we're talking about really small steps. But I do think there's movement, incremental. I was really interested that Liz said a lot of the women that she approached to write um, for this collection of essays didn't feel they had anything to say about rage or found it very difficult to write about it, a, a difficult process. So I'm interested in how the three of you found reacted first and then found the process. Um, let's start with you, Victoria. Well, I found it um, a really natural thing to be asked about and I was really quick to go, absolutely, I know a lot about that. I've thought about that a lot in my life. I've really liked to do that. And that was like maybe the first 90 seconds and then I just felt physically sick, actually. Oh, shit, what have I said that I would do this? And um, 
it was really confronting. It was very surprising to me how um, how bothered I was about speaking about this when I actually began to put pen to paper. And my working career has been asking other people to sit down and on the public record talk about very difficult things and talk about them uh, from a place of real truth. And so having agreed to do this, I just didn't feel like I could fudge it. I couldn't just say some, you know, come out with some nice principles and a colourful anecdote or two that were about other people, not me. I had to really go there. It was actually very, very difficult. But the great thing for me was reading the book. And um, I think something really like physical shifted in me when I read it um, because I, I just saw those experiences that were so excruciating, so powerful as well, but saw those mirrored across so many of the chapters and realised that, um, of course, um, that I'm not alone in that. Um, similar, I guess. When I was asked if I had an idea that I'd like to pitch, you know, did I have any rage in a way that I could write about it? I guess I felt two things. I felt, yeah, I do have rage. I feel once I'm asked about it, I do feel that I, you know, I'm clenched internally a lot of the time. But on the flip side of that, I felt that I didn't know what that was about, and I, and and that I didn't have a right to feel it. You know, I'm I'm white. I'm middle class. I'm heterosexual. I, what 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 has happened to me? What, what what right do I have to claim the level of anger that I felt myself feeling? And then just, you know, um, on the most basic level, where does that rage come from? And that for me was the really interesting part of that process was to follow that, that thought down the rabbit hole, you know, and to realise that in a really, what felt like a self-indulgent way, that the time that I felt the most enraged, and this was sort of the topic sentence that you'd like if I started with, was when I would say to my husband or my daughter, would you let me finish my sentence? You know, and it was that. So starting with that and to be able to just follow that back down, you know, that they say, and the topic, the theme of the festival is self-reflection, isn't it? You know, and they say that life is lived forwards, but understood, but understood backwards. That process for me of investigating why there was so much invested in that sentence and to start to explore the really deep-seated issues of, you know, powerlessness and voicelessness and um, how that was all connected with this deep knot of gendered sort of, you know, marginalisation. That was fascinating for me. Sort of intellectually, it was fascinating. The writing process was, um, I just found I'm a really slow and considered writer. This was completely different. It was fast. There was a velocity that came with those feelings of anger. I had my jaw clenched a lot of the time, but I wrote quickly. I guess for me, like, I often say yes to something. My, my office will tell you this all the time. I go, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And then as it gets closer to the time, I go, what did I agree to do? <laughs> um, and that's what this was like. But I do remember spending a lot of time thinking about rage. And really, for me, there was a cautiousness around it, I have to say, because as a Muslim woman, I've lived that whole Muslim rage thing that came after 9-11. Muslims were seen as angry, you know, the angry Muslim who just wants to kill everyone. 
So there was a real caution around expressing rage. And I wanted to kind of express it in a way that separated it from anger, that it wasn't just about um, a, a kind of a, a passioned response to something. It was more than a passioned response. Rage is more than a passioned response. It's a quiet, creepy, cumulative um, thing that grows, grows on you and, and, and kind of overtakes you when, you when you least expect it. And so I kind of moulded around in my head for a few weeks before I actually started writing. And I searched in the, 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 the troves of my memories for a quintessential moment in my childhood, like um, uh, the other authors did as well, that kind of captured what, what that meant, what rage meant, and where did it start for me? Where did my rage start was where I asked, was, was the question that I was asking myself because it wasn't something that just happened yesterday or, you know, when I got elected to Parliament and realised what a man's world it is, but it's, it's something that I've been cautioned against all my life, have been wary about over the past two decades as a Muslim woman, but something that I realised when I thought about it started actually very early for me. Uh, and that was the, the process. And like, like you, Meg, once I started writing... I, I, normally I'm a fast writer, but once I started writing this, it just all came out. feels like such a common response from, um, and I can only speak from the women's experience anyway, but it just feels like so many women have just layered and layered and layered um, angry moment after angry moment because we have not been able to give it a voice. Can I quote you, Anne? Rage creeps up on you from your essay. It's stealthy like that. Rage shadows you. And it's so interesting to me that that shadow just stays there like a volcano. <laughs> yeah, and it is. And it's like, for me, uh, I relate the story to the Arabic um, word and the Arabic concept of sabr, which roughly translates to patience. And for, for Arab uh, um, women, sabr or patience is held like a trophy you know it's a badge of honor that you wear that you're patient oh look at you you're so great you're patient and and patience is going to get you everything that you ever wanted in life and in my essay I say you know if, if you're patient it'll even get you a dishwasher don't ask me how but patience will get you a dishwasher so you know this idea that patience is a virtue and rage is kind of like something that women don't do we don't fart we don't perspire and we do not rage what do we do instead of fartan? Because I, I, <laughs> well, but we are taught from such a young age, aren't we? I mean, maybe everyone has to mask their farts. Although I think that boys might make a kind of a currency out of them in a way that they, they don't. Games. They have competition. And rage is similar, perhaps. You know, I, I realised when I started writing, I just recalled so many memories from my childhood that I thought, you know, that weren't, they didn't even feel like memories. They felt like things that I was excavating, you know, from a past that was lost to me, that you're not, rage is stealthy and it creeps up on you, but some of us don't even ever get to the point, I think, where we allow it to creep up on us, to even come into the light, because we are just taught to mask it to the extent that we often, I think, aren't even aware of what we're feeling. You know, I have a vivid memory from the age of about 14 of sitting at a bus stop and I think I was just in deep sort of thought about something waiting for a bus and a man walked past and said cheer up love it can't be that bad and we, 
a lot of us have heard a variation on that. And I just had to restrain myself from punching him, you know, from leaping up from the bus stop and just, and, and I, you know, I set it aside. But then when I was thinking about all of this, I remembered that and I thought, that was rage there from thousands of little incidents like that where I'd had to bite my tongue and bite my tongue. And that was one moment where just a little glimmer of it appeared. But, you know, I pushed it away. Because you literally lost your voice. Yeah. I mean, what, what do you say? What can you say? And if you say anything, you can't take a joke. Um, and he didn't mean anything by it. And, you know. Yeah. As a child, um, and I'd love you to relate the story of Agapanthus and, and what happened to you, if you don't mind, um, leading to to that moment where it literally affected your voice. Uh, yes, it's complex. Please stop me if I'm getting too complex. But So I, I have a memory from about the age of four. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the children's um, books, Naughty Agapanthus and Agapanthus, um, but I have this vivid memory of reading one of these children's books and seeing this little figure of Agapanthus, the girl protagonist, and she was furious about something. And it was just this illustration of her on the page and her features were contorted in rage and she was stabbing her foot and the text said an Agapanthus stabbed her foot. And I recognised myself in that image, you know, it was that that quintessential experience of seeing yourself on the page. Um, but you want me to get to the voicelessness aspect of things? Only if you feel like it. Yeah, no, no, no. Well, I mean, it's in the book, you know, um, and here I am speaking reasonably fluently, but, you know, all, it's a fairly complicated knot to unravel. Um, I think I did it in several thousand words there, but I was a, I was a child who um, just wanted to be heard, you know, and didn't want to be made fun of and condescended to and, and, in that little, in, in that scene in the book, it's an agapanthus stamped her foot and her mother took no notice. And, you know, it's it's that and that movement to the being ignored. And, and I just could not wait to get to school. You know, I couldn't wait to get to school. Kindergarten was Play-Doh and pop sticks and all the rest of it. And then school was going to be the thing. And then on the very first day of school, I um, created a small insurrection because, you know, I was an early reader and the teacher was writing everything on the board in capital letters. And I knew that, you know, they weren't for every part of the sentence. They were only for the starts of words and for proper nouns. And so I thought this was some kind of a test. And so I, you know, said, excuse me, excuse me. And she told me to shush. And then I said, excuse me, excuse me. And she told me to shush. And then I just started to gather all the children around me. Um, and, and I ended up on a chair, you know, and my parents received a phone call. And that is just, you know, one in a series of shutting downs, I suppose, where I thought school is where I'm going to blossom, I'm going to be listened to, um, this teacher is going to be my lighthouse, it's, the world will be opening up now, I've got my own desk and I can, and, 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 I, and instead I was treated as if, you know, I was too smart by half and needed to be quiet and the end result of what was a much more complex process was that I developed a stutter. And that stutter, you can see the irony there, right? I'm trying to speak, I'm trying to be heard. And then 
that being shut down leads me to become actually physically voiceless. And that act of being caught in, you know, the contortions that stuttering brings with it affects my identity and causes me further to shut down. And yeah, it was a very complex and um, difficult thing. Yeah. We want to talk about your childhood relationship with anger because you, you and your father. No. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> your, you and your father. Okay, we won't. <laughs> you and your father both have a tempo. So a line I found really interesting in this statement you made that um, you have a temper, your father have a temper. In your essay, you say there was some semi-conscious part of me that assumed it was your father's capacity for anger that put him at the head of the table. Mm. It's such an interesting observation. I just yeah. wondered if you would expand on that. Yeah, it's one of those things kids navigate without having a map, don't they? They instinctively know what is going on without you know having the theory or the the whole context around it but they know and i think that that sense for me was very strong that dad was the head of the household and a really big part of it was that he would go to 11 or 12 on his anger in a way that nobody else in the house would um and i think part of that was that well there are two really interesting things to me about that one was that that was the connection i made but it was definitely in my mind related to um, everything else I saw in the world, everything else I saw in the world, in every other part of the world that I moved in, um, men were, women gave way to men. And there was an edge of anger about that. There was a transaction about anger that could happen or anger that was forestalled if that, if that went on. So my reading my family like that was part of that wider radar. But the other thing that I love is that um, it made me angry as a child. I didn't, I recognised it, I could see it, and I really didn't accept it. I, I love, I only realised this a few years ago, and it was very, it was really wonderful to, to realise this, that as a tiny person, it's my earliest memories, it felt to me, honestly, like mum should be in charge. Mm. And actually, it felt like mum was really in charge. And mum should be in charge. That felt, I don't know, that felt right. That felt even and right to me. Yeah. Um, but it's still the case, like having said all of that, that um, now I'll flip this around because it's complex, which is what makes it so interesting, is that I can say all of those things about my father, but hi, I'm carrying his temper. I don't have my mother's temper. I have my father's temper, which is wild. Yeah. Yeah. In what way? Uh, well, um, I write about it in the chapter, but when um, I too, like I've got like seminal moments in my childhood that I can now look back on, but I come from a family of English migrants and we were absolutely brought up to contain our anger. So um, uh, what was the word? Saab? Sabr. Um, so this yeah. is an Egyptian patience and we had Englishness, but I'm sure it was the same thing. It was basically shut up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, my anger was not like an issue as far as I knew until 
um, I left school. And then when I was about 18 or 19, honestly, out of nowhere, um, uh, I developed this really black temper, like really black temper in all other, well, many other aspects of my life. I was a, you know, fun, interesting, kind, nice person. And then for the people who were close to me, the people who lived with me, um, I would really, really, really lose my shit. And, um, uh, just short of violence. So I never hit anyone, never threw anything at anyone, never physically, directly hurt anyone, but I would throw things, I would break things, and I did a lot of screaming and I said a lot of um, very, very, very cruel things. Yeah, yeah. So this was shocking to me and also um, it was really shocking and it was deeply, deeply mortifying and... Um, uh, I began to get very worried about the effect that I was having on people that I really loved. So at the age of about 23, 24, I went and found a shrink to talk to and I was expecting that what she would do, it would be like one of those, um, um, you know, when you've, um, when you've been port, caught drink driving and um, they send you to a workshop and um, so I'm told, I've never... And, um, <laughs> And yeah. <laughs> um, uh, what they do apparently is that they put you through all of this stuff where they make you realise the consequences of your actions, you know, the people who get injured and all the bad things that happen. That's what I thought my shrink would do, that she would shame me into stopping, you know. Think about how awful this is, how scary it is, how, more, how humiliating and hurtful. I was ready for all of that, like really bracing myself. I told her my whole story and like, come on, bring it, punish me. And... All she did was say one thing. She hadn't said anything the whole way through. And when I got to the end of my terrible story, all she said was this. She said, why are you angry? Why are you angry? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was devastating. Yeah. It's devastating. Yeah. And um, because the truth was, um, you know, there was a lot behind that door. Yeah. And it, um, and that was about, well, that's a long story. I'm going to. I'm going to pass the talking stick on in a second, but it was fantastic, and that was probably, you know, the beginning of me actually um, having a, a proper life and a and a proper relationship with myself. Yeah, that's so interesting because just hearing you ask that question, or you were asked that question, but hearing you articulate it now, why is why are you so angry? I had an emotional response to that, you know, and I think it just even just being asked that question. Why are you angry? And and being given permission to even think about it, relief again. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that women, that's that's why I think things have changed because I think it's like it's like that moment in the Truman Show where bits of the <laughs> tiled sky fall yeah, down yeah, yeah. and that's what's happened. And I think right. that all of us are living out the most ridiculous burdens and constrictions and dangers just because we're women and you know what it isn't right and we all know it we carry this this rage about it because it is not okay and I think that's what's coming that's what's I can feel the ground breaking I'm sorry go on I'm interested in your thoughts on that and given the time you spent in Parliament particularly, but if you have <laughs> other thoughts. Um, no, I was just listening to you speak, Victoria, and I looked over at my, my um, husband's Dave because um, when, 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 when I met Dave, I was really angry. I'd just come, I'd come out of two 
My first relationship was physically violent. My second marriage was also physically and emotionally violent. And I had resigned myself to, if you are not going to be this patient, quiet person, and you are going to speak up and be angry, then the price you pay for that is being hit. I honestly remember talking myself through and going, well, Anne, you're just the kind of woman that men like to hit. And that's going to be the price that you have to pay in your life for speaking up. So you make a choice. Either you speak up and you get hit and you take it and you take it and you take it and you bear the bruises or you stay quiet. And I've made a conscious decision that I couldn't do that, that I couldn't be that quiet person. Um, and when I uh, first met Dave, I remember one of our first arguments that we had and I was yelling and screaming and my hands were going up and down. I was banging doors and Dave just looks at me and he goes, really? Do you think I deserve that? I was like, yes, you deserve that. Actually, no, you don't. <laughs> and it was that for me was that moment where I went, why am I so angry? And it was because I'd lived my life being you know, thinking that being angry was something that I had to do. I had to be that, that person. I had to be angry. And it was kind of my, my, my shield, if you like, but also I had flipped around that whole thing of, you know, wearing patience like a badge of honour. And for me, wearing my bruises from being hit and kicked and punched was a badge of honour. It was, here's the price I paid for speaking up. Right? Here's the price I paid for not being quiet and not being patient. Here's the price I paid for being angry. Um, so that really resonated with me, and I know it resonates with Dave too, because we looked at each other when you were telling that story. <laughs> and you know, uh, you know, talking about about Parliament, yeah, the Parliament is such a white patriarchal institution, and I'm not ashamed to say here that yeah, you know, there are many times where I've thought I don't belong here, I'm leaving. Um, and it's other women who have who have told me, no, you need to stay because you are fighting this institution. Um, but, you know, and, and, and I hear you both say that the dial has changed, the dial has changed, but every time a woman speaks out, every time a woman raises her voice, every time a woman, um, you know, talks about, I know when I talk about domestic violence or when even, even if I talk about, you know, uh, right-wing violent extremism, uh, Grace Tame, Brittany Higgins, the shit that they have copped for speaking out, it's still there. There is still this kind of, you know, don't talk about it, keep it quiet, this whole, you know, there is still in our society, whether it's in parliament, in the public sphere, there is still this expectation that we just shut up and take it. That's why I say we haven't moved. I'm going to throw it open to questions. This is such a short session and I wish um, that we had more time, but I really encourage you, haven't got this book, to pick up a copy and read these essays um, and then have a think about your own response. Are there any questions? Um, if you have one. Um, raise your hand and we'll bring a microphone out to you. 
We have one at the back. Yes, hello. Kerry. Hi, Kerry. Um, and my brain was thinking Grace Tame, Brittany Higgins and the silencing of them still. I'd just like to know all your thoughts on young women who are thinking of getting into politics are still seeing this. How is like a PR campaign? Can you inspire young women to be angry, but you can still be in politics and in parliament? Mm. I, uh, yeah, I talk to a lot of young women about this very topic, about, you know, can you be angry and be in politics and be in parliament? And um, I, I think that what we need is a critical mass. You know, I think we need to say, like I said earlier, we had this moment, but let's not make it a moment. Let's make it a momentum. Let's make it a seismic shift. Let's keep it going. Let's really push for that change. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, it, it, it's an incredible platform to be a member of parliament and an, an, an incredible privilege. And I've thought a lot about, you know, how do I use this platform and this privilege? And I'm not, a, I'm not afraid to be publicly angry. I'm not afraid to publicly call out hypocrisy or all the rubbish when I see it. But I see a lot of people who are. I mean, even Julia Gillard admits that, you know, through her time, she wishes that she had called out the misogyny a lot more than just that speech, that she had spoken out a bit more about it. Um, Julie Bishop has said the same thing. So I think there's, um, we need a critical mass and we need to be able to um, encourage each other to, to be angry as well. Often the political system and the party system as well, the party and the politics forces you to, to toe a line and be quiet and be silent about it. Um, and, and, you know, look, Brittany Higgins didn't or withdrew her, her, her rape complaint because she was worried about the impact that it would have on the party for the election. I mean, you know, we've got to break this, this bullshit down. We've got to destroy it. And we, I can't do that on my own. And even though we have 50% of women in parliament or close to 50 now, we can't do that on our own. We need, we need more women to be coming in and helping us to create that critical mass. Meg, have you got any thoughts? I don't feel, well, I don't feel I can speak to that specific question about the context of parliament, but I, I will say that while I was sitting and listening to Anne speak just now and also earlier, I was having that reaction again of, you know, these are real things to get angry about. And, you know, that my, my peace and my rage feels sort of like nothing in context, but the truth is, that that's ridiculous and it's a kind of a self-minimizing you yeah. know once more but it's also true to say that these the contexts that we're working in are different but the processes that we're talking about are all coming from exactly the same place you know so I am someone who will speak up and will say be quiet, I'm talking, let me finish my sentence and all of those things. And I, you know, I don't throw things anymore and I don't slam doors, um, but I have done. And I, it's just that my context has been different and I haven't met 
someone who wanted to hit me for that. And that's just my good fortune, you know. But I spent years in academia sitting at a table where you would say something and somehow it would be almost like you were in a parallel universe in that no one would hear it. And then a moment later, a man would say the same thing. Oh, yeah. And everyone would respond. Haven't we all been and I there? Think, what is happening? You know, these things are all part of the same web. Yeah. So I think, as Anne says, the only way to break down the multifaceted kind of, you know, legs of this enormous spider is to just chip away, chip away, chip away at it in every context that we have and to achieve that critical mass of, you know, bodies on the ground and voices in the air and, you know, fists clenched. There seems to be a relationship with truth. You mentioned truth early on in your piece and, and, and anger for women. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's where anger is actually really useful for women and partly why it's been trained out of us because it is really dangerous because it's um it's a truth pulse you know it's the most direct visceral whole body brain and soul experience that you're in opposition to something and you might not know that you know sometimes things just seem so ubiquitous and that's the way things are you know blokes older blokes say stuff to you at bar stops and that's just how it is and if you're 14 years old you just have to put up with it and the fact that you're angry for me is really magnificent. It's a, it's a little door opening. It's telling you, actually, that's not just the way things are. You stand in opposition to that. You wouldn't be angry about it. You know, like I've got a cold and I've lost my, my voice. I'm not angry about that. It was, um, I was a bit sad about it. It didn't make me angry. But that makes you angry. You're opposed to it. And it's that truth, the truth of that, is really important because it is very difficult to actually uh, sometimes be honest with ourselves about how much is not okay in the lives that we have, you know. I'm 53 years old and I really wanted to believe that I was going to have a life without any barriers, that all of the feminist project was done and great and it's a part of me that doesn't actually want to acknowledge. I don't want to think about all the things that I have to think about are the things that I can't do in my life. I don't want to think about that. But those things actually do need to be addressed. And the anger is, for me, I, I'm not too worried about women being angry or angry women coming into parliament. It's just like, let it rip, as far as I'm concerned. All of those are little signals going off and we need to pay attention to them. Because they're look, real. You look historically, both in, in literature and, and um, you know, in in uh, like the cultural aspect of how women's anger is framed as opposed to men's anger. Men's anger is seen as a strength, whereas women's anger is really scary. It's hell hath no fury, right? Um, and and, and it, this is really this moment that we're talking about now, where we are now. It's really um, a factor of generations and generations and generations and generations of a social norm of women's anger as being dangerous and men's anger as being strength. And I think that's a really interesting thing to explore. There's something as well about if we, like in, in current context, if you think about angry men, then it's about violence and it's like, well, that's scary. And the idea is that they will damage other people. They will dangerous to other people. Whereas women's anger is about that's dangerous to you. If you get angry, that's, you're putting yourself in a 
dangerous position. That's really interesting. And we have another, I hope that answered your question. And I know <laughs> we have a question over here. Oh, sorry. Well, in that case, do we have a question? Yes, we have a question over here. <laughs> Thank you. Hi. Is it working? Yeah. yeah. Hi. Um, it's a question for Anne, but um, I'd like to hear the other answers as well from the other two. And you're sitting in Parliament and somebody says something that makes you so angry. I get it just from political talk around, among my friends. How? What happens? What's the physical process that you do not to get up and scream? What, like, what, how do you stop yourself from crying or screaming or yelling at these people? How, how do you articulate yourself when you're just, you're just, your voice is blocked with rage? Haven't you seen the photos of me screaming? And <laughs> yeah. But you I don't, don't do it all the time, surely. I don't hold back. I do scream and yell a lot. Um, <laughs> a lot. And I don't, I don't see any reason why I should hold back. Like, you know, if something is so infuriating, then I think it's perfectly okay to be able to express that physically. And I'm not saying getting up and, you know, punching Peter Dutton in the mouth. Oh, did I say Peter Dutton? That's the tweet. That's the tweet. No, yeah. no, 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 not at all, not at all. I certainly do not advocate violence. But be, to be able to express that anger um, you know, in a physical way through yelling about it. Um, but you know, then you then you kind of try and find ways of of, of using your position in parliament, you know, the parliamentary system, to you know, address the substantial issue. Because if I'm if I'm getting angry, it's not over something stupid. It's over a substantial issue. It's over the way that you know uh, people on welfare are being treated, or single mothers are being talked about, or domestic violence is being looked at those kinds of things. Um, so you find ways within the parliamentary system and avenues in order to make that substantive change. And I think that's the thing, is to look beyond the kind of immediate emotional response, even though there's nothing wrong with an immediate emotional response, but to look at the substantive issue and see how you can affect change for that substantive issue once you get over all the the anger. And for better or worse, I think sometimes we really do have to take that line as women as well, because the moment we bring emotion into it, you know, that we start to scream around and the rest of it, it's oh, she's so emotional, she's hysterical. hysterical, it's all the rest of it. Tim so Wilson if you can just take a step back and be articulate and on the money and factual and, you know, just take it down one brick at a time in a calm way. I mean, and that, obviously that works for me as well because then I'm not speaking under pressure, so I'm less likely to block and, you but know, the men don't do that. The men no, get I, all red-faced and, and that's why I say better or worse because they're allowed to and yeah. we're not. So maybe we're in a transitional phase where we have to kind of use, you know, different tools in order to take apart the master's house. I think there are different emotions in there and um, sometimes because they're all very powerful and they're attached to each other, it's hard to see that there is a difference, but there is a difference. And Claire Coleman, I just quickly looking it up again, her fantastic chapter. She says this brilliant thing. She says, anger without fear or hatred attached to it is a really fertile place to work. And I think sometimes we get muddled between the feelings of fear and hatred that come up for us and think that's anger. And I don't think it is. I think that um, anger, you can still be angry and behave uh, with your full intelligence engaged. Yeah. Yeah. 
don't know if we have time for one more question. Yeah. <laughs> We've got time for one more question, very quickly. Uh, <laughs> it had to be a very quick question. And then I, I promise we'll wrap up really quickly. But, you know, we're women and we're angry. <laughs> um, thanks. I'm really enjoying this session. I, I was just interested in what the panel thinks about um, rage and anger in the social media space. We'll have to keep I'm the answers. <laughs> I'll go really? quickly on that and then I'll pass it on. I actually don't think that's anger. I think it's hatred most of the mm. time. I think that uh, it might come from all sorts of, you know, structural sources. But I think that what you see when people go really crazy is actually hatred. Yeah, which is a different beast. Yeah, I think that's a really important point there, Victoria, that, you know, as somebody who gets a lot of it, it I know that it come, It doesn't come from a place of passion. It comes from an actual a dark place, whereas anger doesn't necessarily always come from a dark place. It comes from a caring place a lot of the time. Meg? I'm happy with that. Please thank Victoria Midwinter Pitt. And Ali and, and Meg McKinley. And again, I encourage you to pick up the book, have a read, and also just have a think about the responses that it provokes in you, some of these essays when you read them. Um, I just found it fascinating and brilliant and such an important conversation. Thank you all for coming along and listening. And to thank Anne, Meg and Victoria for joining yeah. us this afternoon. That's beautiful. We have hand-woven scarves woven for us by women of Ubud. Thank you.